Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Homicidal Tendencies. For today's episode, we're going to be talking about the kidnapping of Natasha Campouche. Okay, so Natasha Campouche was born February 17, 1988, in Vienna, Austria. There really wasn't any information on her childhood before the kidnapping, so I'm just going to jump straight into the kidnapping. So, on the morning of March 2nd, 1998, 10-year-old Natasha was walking to school by herself, and it's actually something that she rarely ever did, according to her mom. And it's just crazy how changing one small thing in routine can affect everything that happens in that day. So, halfway to school... Natasha noticed a man was standing in front of a white van, and she noticed that he appeared to be waiting for somebody. And, you know, he definitely was waiting for somebody. He was being a fucking creep, waiting for the first kid that he saw. Yep. So, at first, Natasha, she was going to cross the street, but then she decided to just keep going straight. And really, what I feel like, I feel like that was her instincts trying to tell her that this guy's dangerous and, you know, you need to stay away from him. You've noticed him and see that he's looking for somebody. Right. Stay away. Just, you know, go around. I ain't seen you here before. Right. So, you know, never ignore those gut feelings that you have. It's your brain telling you that something is off. So as soon as she got within his reach, he snatched her and dragged her into his van. She tried to scream, but she couldn't get any sound out. You know, she was frozen in fear, and she just, she couldn't make any noise. Ten years old. Yeah, so she, yeah. Well, yeah, it was something that she usually didn't do. Well, yeah. It was a small city. Yeah. Well, it's something that she usually didn't do. She was usually accompanied by somebody who was drove there, but for some reason on this particular day, she was just walking to school by herself. And so, like I said, she, she was trying to scream. She couldn't do anything. She was just frozen. And so this poor little baby, like, I can only imagine how scared she must have been. You know, she was trying to get to school, and here comes this weirdo who probably spends his time touching himself to kitty porn <laughs> and, you know, just trying to snatch her up. And so, of course, her kidnapper pulls the classic tale of, you know, if you stay quiet and don't move, I won't hurt you. Right. I don't even know you. Nah, bro. I ain't come here with you like that. Yeah, and so. Yeah. But so, you know, she she listens to him and does what she's told because, you know, she's young. That's all she knows what to do. And so, once at the kidnapper's house in in Strasshoff, which is only 18 miles away from her home, he takes her to the garage, wraps her in a blue blanket, and carries her into the house. He carried her downstairs and left her on the floor in the dark cell. And, you know, the mom was really on point with this because after Natasha was missing for more than 10 minutes, she calls the childminder, who's basically just a nanny. And so she called that person and didn't get an answer. And then she waited another 30 minutes and then she called again. And the childminder finally picked up and said that Natasha had never made it to school. And Natasha's never late. So at this point, her mom knows that something is wrong. So back at the kidnapper's house, Natasha was given a five centimeter thick foam rubber mattress to sleep on and then the blue blanket that she was wrapped in and had to use her jacket as a pillow. And I'm just saying, like, come on, if you're going to take the time out to plan and execute a kidnapping, you could at least give your victim a, a pillow and a decent mattress, you know? That's a yoga mattress. <laughs> like that, that is really, that, that is just pitiful. Like, it's terrible. 
And early on in the kidnapping, he burnt her shoes and took away her school bag. And I mean, I don't even see the purpose in that. That's just him being a dickhead, basically. <laughs> Maybe, who knows? Well, okay, so. <laughs> so, the entrance to the cell that she was being kept in was underneath the garage and in a disguised trap door. Through the trap door, there was a metal cupboard that had to be pushed aside, revealing a safe that was 70 centimeters high that looked like it was a part of the wall. And then behind that, a meter thick wall had been hollowed out. And to get in, you'd have to crawl in backwards and then secure a 150 kilo concrete door behind you to shut off the hole. That's not even it, wait, and then, to the left, there were double wooden doors that led you down into the five meter right, cell she was being trapped in. I would have put you down and never came back. Like, Man, like he put so much effort into to keep her hidden away. Like this was obviously he'd planned this out for a while. Look, and she, she said it took him about an hour just to get in to get to her. <laughs> like, are you serious? Bro, imagine hearing your kidnapper come. I know she. She talks about that. Like she said, like. Every soon she heard the lock start tearing, all that start moving around. She would just get so scared and nervous, and her heart start beating real fast. Like she knew when he was coming, like uh, so much. So within the first few days, police are searching for her, trying to gather any information they can. And this is when twelve-year-old Ishtar Akin comes forward, claiming that she saw one man snatch her from the street and shove her into a white van, while the other drove the van away. Yeah. Well, she she was twelve years old, you know. And Still, I would went to school. Hey, man. Uh... <laughs> now I know, I, I know. Over there on Twelfth Street, man, it was some weird. I don't know if they got some cameras or something. But I know some little kid just got yanked a dang thing. You know but now look, <laughs> really though, the police fucked this up again, just like the other case they fucked. Yeah. So sadly, this information didn't lead the police anywhere. It really just confirmed for them that Natasha had been kidnapped. And also, it was weird that this little girl strongly believed that she saw two men, even though Natasha only had one kidnapper. But I'm going to get back into that later on, like towards the end of the story. Because, you know, there's a little theory going around. Okay, so, but because of the information Ishtar provided, police were able to question 1,520 owners of white vans and then an additional 650 people, leading them to... Yeah, that's way too many people to be quite like how. <laughs> that's a whole lot of time, but okay. So this investigation led them to Wolfgang Prick Lopil, and he's a prick, so I'm going to call him Prick. So Prick was a 35 year old senior computer. Mm. You were the person who named super villains. <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying, it, I think it fits. You this know. He's a prick, so that's his name for the story. So, he was a 35-year-old single computer technician and property developer, and he had no criminal record. And he also lived in his mother's house. His alibi for the day of the crime was that he was at home on that day. And even though there was nobody to confirm it, police dropped the investigation because they had no probable cause. Right, like they do a whole lot of other stuff with no probable cause, but okay. Okay, so anyway, <laughs> let's not get into that. At first, Natasha had no way of contacting her kidnapper to request things that she needed, so he eventually built an intercom for them to 
you know, talk back and forth or whatever. A direct quote from Natasha talking about the room that she was being held in reads, each drop of water meant more mold. It was humid and wet in the little room and there were all kinds of insects there. It smelled musty. It was very cold and damp, really disgusting. And the ventilator was a kind of torture. It was very loud and when it rotated for a long time, it got very hot. End quote. <laughs> Eight days after police questioned Prick, someone called in who was suspicious of him not knowing the police already looked into him. The caller identified Prick as a shy loner who owns a white van and is thought to have a sexual interest in children. And it's like, damn, dude, how creepy are you that you're a loner, but your neighbor still thinks you're a pedophile? Like, obviously, something's off there. But even with this tip, the police basically say, fuck it, and don't look further into it. They just drop the whole thing against him. So eventually, when Prick was sure that Natasha wouldn't run away, he started letting her up from the cell and into the house, kind of turning her into a slave. She said that he was a clean freak and he would make her wipe down literally everything. And anytime she left behind any fingerprints, he would grab her by the wrist and use the back of her hand to wipe it off. And like, yeah, she says that obviously he would do it for, you know, to give her any DNA evidence she was there. But also he was just being an asshole, you know, because he was just super clean freak, tidy type of person. And he was saying, you know, oh, the fingerprints are greasy and make everything look disgusting. You need to get rid of that right now. Like, make my shit look spick and span, basically. This type of guy that he was. Yeah, <laughs> that's really, yeah, that's really what he was doing. He did that the whole time to her. So, and he would also make her pull her hair back with the clips and rubber bands and wear plastic bags over her head, plastic bags over her head. And she said this whole thing was very uncomfortable and it, like, would dig into her scalp. And eventually, because she was always complaining about it and stuff, she just like, you know, cut her hair off. And then he was like, well, I might as well shave your whole head now. And, you know, he just, he shaved her bald. And even though he had enough money to afford a BMW, he would often let her go hungry. He'd show her all the food that he had, like open the fridge and just say, you know, I, yeah, I have this, this, you see all of this? And just tear off a little piece for her and give it to her and say, that's all you get. <laughs> yeah, that and a billion other things. He he's a prick. Like who does that? You know, what's the purpose of showing me your whole piece of chicken and right. giving me a little shredded chicken and say, "There you go, bitch." That that's unnecessary. Yeah, come at me like that. I'm gonna take your chicken. Would have snatched it from him real quick. But okay, and so not only that, but he hated when she cried. Now punches like a super. Throw punch, chicken snatch. Shut up. And so, like, back to him being a clean freak, kind of, he hated when she cried. And sometimes when she cried, he would drag her by the throat and force her to lean over the sink because he was scared that the hydrochloric acid in her tears would corrode the tile, which makes no sense. Are you serious? Like, he's just being so cruel to her for no reason. Like, ooh, excuse me, guys. <laughs> he would always tell her. <laughs> He would always tell her that she was useless and worthless and that she would never be able to escape. And another direct quote from her is, One of the worst scenes during my captivity was when he shoved me, wearing only a pair of panties, half-starved, covered in bruises, with my head completely shorn, in front of the door and said, Come on now, run. Let's see how far you get. End quote. When he would get sick... 
No, it really is like that. That's messed up. That's messed up. Like that one movie, uh, what, what movie, uh, uh, I can't think of the black dude name. Is it Samuel Jackson? Uh, what movie are you talking about? Man, he had like a white girl chained up with some other Ooh, stuff. Oh, uh. Oh, God, bro. I'm trying to tell you, I can't think of the name. Uh, I'm gonna look it up while you continue. <laughs> Best believe that. Okay, so when he would get sick, he would make her cook soup for him and make tea. And then after she, you know, played maid for him, he would take her back down to the cell and lock her back up. And then we just completely forget about her. Hmm. So you know, anytime he got sick, he would just make her care for him and then completely forget about her and let her stay down there and starve. No water, no food, whatever, nothing. Eventually, a private detective started working on the case and accused her mother of being involved and said that she had murdered Natasha because she got in the way of a relationship. She had started with a businessman, which we know this isn't true because the way I'm telling the story, we can tell that Natasha lives, you know, but I just brought that up because of the theory I'm going to get into later on. It's kind of interesting that someone else thought she was involved in this. So Natasha was a smart young girl, and she wanted to continue to learn. So she would request books from him and learn math, and she would have him tutor her in math and all that type of stuff. But just to go back to how cruel he was, like, yeah, he would do this for her, but then at the same time, she would ask him to, like, test her on the math that she was learning. And so he would be like, okay, yeah, sure. And he would take the test, and he would mark it all wrong, everything wrong, just all red ink, the whole paper. Just to be an asshole for no reason. And so after the first three years, he started to allow her to go out into his garden with him. But only at night and, you know, a few minutes at a time. And throughout this, like, whole thing. Bro, so that movie is Black Snake Moment. I've never heard of that. So, basically, after her lover, Justin Timberlake, leaves to serve in the military, Ray, Christina... Ricky or whatever gives in to her raging lib- what's that? Where's it at? Raging libido. Sex and, drive. Oh. Basically. Shit. She wants to fuck. And leaves into a life of wild abandon. Uh, Lazarus, Samuel Jackson, a troubled bluesman, finds Ray beaten and left for dead. He takes her in and holds her captive in an attempt to help her find a cure for her affliction hmm. but basically he just has her like chained up to yeah. this radiator the whole time mm. like he's like like she gets like real skinny and oh uh, so like i can imagine what this girl like looks like right and then she's young too like i mean it's after years have passed but she's still young you know she's only yeah. 10 so probably about 13 14 she's going through all that being starved and crazy so yeah, but okay, so throughout this whole thing, like, Natasha seems to be very understar, y'all. He's showing me pictures real quick. Yeah, why this? <laughs> she looks sick as hell. But okay, let, let me get back to the story. So, throughout this, Natasha seems to be very understanding of him. She said that he was probably this way because of some illness and injury, and that she could tell he was unstable, and like... She's just being so understanding, you know, she's not even really mad at him about it. She's just like, something's obviously wrong with you if you're going to do this to me for you to think that kidnapping me would solve your problems. Hmm. She's just fine with it. I'm not going to say fine with it, you know, because she would obviously want to be free, but she's chill about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, after a while, it's just like, you know what, I'm here, I'm 
Yeah. Oh, wait. Oh, let, let me get into this. I'm telling everybody. We're just the beginning. <laughs> she also said that at times she hated him because of his unnecessary cruelness, but that she forgave him almost immediately the second that he kidnapped her. Wait, she started falling in love with No, 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 no. But say, some people do speculate. But now some people do speculate that she formed the Stockholm Syndrome thing, which is basically you fall in love uh, with the person. Some people kind of speculate that because yeah, of the she, way... Yeah, I'll get into that a little bit. Now I'm gonna touch on it a little bit later on. But yeah, so she said that she feels if she would have kept all of that hate and anger inside of her, that it would have destroyed her physically and she wouldn't have been able to survive. Which is probably true because you know you shouldn't allow hate and anger to fester inside of you. Like you have to forgive people and move on. You like because holding a grudge is it's gonna hurt you more than it's ever gonna hurt the other person that you're mad at. Just you just have to believe that what goes around comes around and walk away from the situation at that point. So yeah. More years passed and he started to bring her places with him. You know, he got real comfortable. He kept her from running away by threatening to kill anybody she spoke to or anybody that saw her, which is impossible any fucking way. He's just lying. <laughs> like he can't just go around slaughtering everyone who sees you. But anyway. So finally on August twenty third, two thousand six Natasha was vacuuming Prick's van for him when his phone rang. The noise from the vacuum was so loud that he had to walk away. And when he walked away, he put a good 36 feet between him and Natasha. And he also let the garden gate open. So she sees this is her chance. This is her moment. And trust me, she let that vacuum go in and she got the fuck up out of there. She ran as far and as fast as she could. could. Yes. <laughs> she ran as far and fast as she could. Cartoon, he would have turned around, so <laughs> just dust flying up. <laughs> I'm telling you. And so she went to a neighbor's house and started knocking on the window asking for help. The neighbor called the police, and, the, and when the police reported to the scene, Natasha was able to explain to them who she was. She told the police about how she had been beaten and abused for over the past eight and a half years. Because Be- y'all, two to two different two different times when they came and talked to him, and nothing. But no, they talked to him one time, and then when they got the tip the second time, they just dropped it, even though it was from a person they already investigated. And you know how mad I'd be if I heard, like, one of the officer's voices that was like, the hell? I, like, punch him. Like, you were there. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I swear. Nah, she, well, she couldn't hear anything that was going on with all that concrete yeah, yeah, stuff. Yeah. Well, yeah. Okay, so because she said she didn't want to speak about any sexual abuse, there's nowhere where it officially says that she was raped. The only time it was talked about was in a movie about her. And then this scene could have just been dramatization. So really, who knows, you know? So that same day when... Don't fall for the illusion, guys. But actually, I'm going to get into it again. Back to the theory. I'm going to get into that in a second. So, but that same day when Prick discovered that Natasha had escaped and the police found her, he threw himself under the wheels of an oncoming train decapitating him and killing him so this guy never has to face anything for any of his crimes he just goes and offs himself like a little bitch that he is you know how how do you kidnap and you hold a girl captive for 3096 days just to go and kill yourself when you're about to get caught bullshit and you know now she owns the house and she goes back and visits it from time to time and to her, that's her way of saying, fuck you. You know, I got back myself and I own this house now where you tortured me in. This is my place now. 
But then that's kind of what people will say, you know, the Stockholm Syndrome comes into place where she kind of misses it, you know. So let's get into the theory real quick. So the first thing is that the way that Wolfgang died, the prick guy. And it's really more than just a conspiracy theory. So coroners Johan Mislewitz and Martin Grasberger both declared that medical and legal reports were contradictory and not sufficient enough to declare his death a suicide. And also a former president of the Supreme Court of Vienna agrees that there are serious doubts about whether the kidnapper killed himself or not. And a little bit after Natasha escaped, Prick was also caught on CCTV at a shopping center with his friend Ernst Hazefold. I cannot pronounce that. I'm not even going to lie to you guys. I'm sorry. Ernst is his name. Let me try. full? Exactly. So Ernst, I should call him Ernie, but no, I'm not. Okay, Ernst, who admitted to helping Prick avoid police, but he claimed it was because Prick told him he had been stopped earlier for a DUI and was scared to lose his license. But I'm going to call that real quick and say, yeah, because first of all, if they were going to take your license, they would have taken it away when they stopped you. They're not going to stop you, let you go, and then come back and chase you afterwards and say, wait, we want your license now. You know, and you should know that, but whatever, you know, <laughs> who knows. And also, Ernst had even met Natasha before. Prick had, bought, had brought her to Ernst's house to borrow some tools, and she introduced herself as his acquaintance, and he thought nothing of it. He claimed to not realize it was a missing girl because she was a bit older, you know, some time had passed, so she looked different. She wasn't the 10-year-old everyone was looking for. And eventually in 2009, he admitted that Prick confessed to kidnapping Natasha on the day that she escaped. And he says that he never told police because he was worried they would wrongfully link him to her kidnapping. Which, I mean, I kind of get it, but... Yeah. So he was the whole time. No, no, we, we know. Look, I'm, I'm going to keep going. I'm not, I'm not going to put blame on anybody because this is just a theory. Yeah, it's not, it hasn't been proven yet. You know, it's just a theory. But it's some stuff. Let me talk. So, <laughs> and oddly enough... He kept in contact with Natasha after all of this. Like, she spoke with him more than she even spoke with her own family, which is weird as hell if you ask me. There were also claims that Natasha's mother abused her often and was involved in her disappearance and helped organize it. But there's not, like, really any solid proof on any of this, though. And besides the fact that the dad also claimed she had part in it, that's about as good as the evidence gets. And the last part to all of this is the suicide of police investigator Colonel Franz Crow, who was in charge of the Campuche investigation. He was found dead on the balcony with a bullet hole in his head. Independent investigators claim that his suicide was suspicious and his brother Carl believes that he was killed because earlier on his brother came to him saying that he was on to something big and he was linking high-ranking numbers of society to the Campuche case. Yeah. And, you know, there still isn't any hard evidence to prove any of this. So for now, it's all just speculation. But I just thought it was something interesting to bring to the story because there's a lot of people talking about this and there's been books written on it, too. There's just still no really hard evidence. So who really knows what actually happened to her? But for now, Natasha still claims that there was no one else involved. And, you know, it's just hard to believe that she would try to protect people, protect the people who had a hand in her kidnapping. So for now, all we have to go on is that it was just Prick and he killed himself. And that was the case of the kidnapping of Natasha Campouche. If you enjoyed my telling of this story, 
Be sure to leave a five-star review and tune in next time on Homicidal Tendencies. Bye.